The rabbi was hungry for stories and teachings about Yeshua, Jesus. But when he discovered life in Messiah, everything changed. Out of that exchange, an entire new ministry to Jewish people was born. You're going to explore it for yourself this week on The Land and the Book. Welcome. I'm John Geiger, our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, who is in Israel even as we speak. Charlie, good to connect with you again. John, it's great connecting with you. And, uh, you know, people don't know, we had a great time in Israel. Uh, I'm still here, but... Uh, hopefully you're still recovering from jet lag. <laughs> and that whirlwind trip uh, interviewing so many different people, all of whom will be a part of an upcoming Moody Radio special, In Time for Christmas, airing on many of these uh, same stations, unwrapping Christmas in the Old Testament. Look for more on that. But Charlie, right now, time to look into this week's uh, glance at current events. Story number one, after more than three years, Israel finally has a budget. Why did the process take so long, and why is passing this budget so significant? Well, the process took so long because of Israel's fractured political system and because of all the multiple elections. They weren't able to assemble a coalition, or when they did, they couldn't keep it together long enough to pass a budget. Uh, just over a week ago, uh, there were times when it looked like the current budget wasn't going to pass. Two procedural votes on the budget failed in committee, but the votes weren't sufficient to block the process. Now, as the Global Climate Conference took place in Glasgow a week ago, the Knesset began its formal debate on the proposed budget. Each Knesset member was given 30 minutes to present his or her views on the budget and its accompanying document, and that took two full days. Voting then began on the budget last Wednesday, but it wasn't until Thursday when the budget was finally approved. Now, technically, the government actually had until this coming Sunday to approve a budget but procedural issues required them to have it approved long before that deadline. Passing the budget is significant, though, for several reasons. Chief among them is the fact that Israel's been operating without a budget since 2019. That kept the government from addressing some serious financial and social issues. Mm -hmm. But the second reason this is so significant is the reality that failure to pass a budget would have brought down the coalition and led to another election. Uh, this provides some breathing room for the current government to function. And a third reason this was so significant is that the accompanying arrangements bill that goes along with the budget will bring some major changes to the country. Uh, for example, it breaks the monopoly the ultra-Orthodox have had on the Kashrut establishment. That's what decides what can be labeled as kosher. Uh, it also raises taxes on items like disposable plasticware and sugary drinks, while making it easier to import other items into Israel, hopefully lowering costs on electronics and other items for consumers. Now, in the end, this was a major victory for the current coalition, but it also sets the stage for the factions that make up that coalition to now begin pushing for their personal agendas, which span the waterfront ideologically. That'll be the next major test of this coalition's ability to survive. Now, for a city that strives to be kosher, Jerusalem has a pork problem. Not in restaurants or grocery stores, of course, but on the city streets. Charlie, why has there been such a growth in the pig population of Jerusalem? Yeah, the problem can be traced back to two main causes. The first is the pandemic. Wild boars have always been a problem in cities like Haifa uh, that are next to wilderness areas, but the pandemic and subsequent lockdowns took people off the streets which left urban areas more open to wild animals that would normally avoid humans. But the second cause for the problem, especially in Jerusalem, can be traced back to all the fires in the area this past summer. You know, we drove down those roads and just saw yeah. uh, hillsides 
wiped out by those fires. Well, those fires destroyed large wooded areas that had served as the habitat for boars and other wild animals. And with their normal habitat destroyed, those animals were forced to hunt for food and water elsewhere. And that's what's been bringing them into greater Jerusalem and into more direct contact with humans. And uh, the problem isn't just wild boars. Jackals, even porcupines have been showing up on Jerusalem streets. Hmm. But the wild boars are by far the greatest threat because they travel in packs. Uh, They're smart enough to break into gardens and trash cans and they'll attack if they feel threatened. Uh, The biggest boar problem in the Jerusalem area is in Mevaseret Zion, which is on the west side of the city, just off the road that leads from Jerusalem to Tel Aviv. Now, in the interest of journalistic integrity, John, we need to say, we were there this past week, and we didn't see any boars. (laughs) Uh, Now, some residents, though, have been terrified by some rather aggressive boars, which can be the size of Rottweilers. Now, the problem now is, how do you deal with the problem? Yeah. Some want the authorities to, as, as they euphemistically put it, dilute the wild boar population. Others are opposed to harming the animals. It wasn't their fault that their habitat was destroyed. So for right now, the only real solution is to try to chase the boars away from homes, back toward unoccupied woodlands, and, and hope they'll settle back in those surroundings. Well, and no doubt some of them are, are hoping that they can finally say, blee, blee, that's all, folks. That's right. This is The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, looking at current events. Charlie, the debate over the location of the New Testament city of Bethsaida, we drove by it, continues to simmer as archaeologists excavating at El Araj released their findings from this past summer's dig, suggesting their site is the quote, real Bethsaida. What did they uncover, and why has it been so difficult to find the hometown of Andrew and Peter? Well, the archaeologists at El Araj uncovered mosaic floors in the ruins of a building which they believe is the lost church of the apostles. Uh, Some of the mosaics contained inscriptions, one of which was dedicated to a bishop who evidently renovated the structure during his time in office. An 8th century Bavarian bishop said he visited Bethsaida and that there was a church on the site over the home of Peter and Andrew. Now, since a church has apparently been discovered at El Araj, while no remains of a church have been found yet at at Tel, the other potential site, these archaeologists believe this proves they're excavating at the real site of Bethsaida. Unfortunately, the evidence isn't quite as strong as they suggest. It's not yet clear that the mosaic floor they uncovered belongs to the church mentioned by that bishop. And even if it is, his statement that the site was Bethsaida was made nearly 700 years after the time of Jesus. His travel log also seems to contain some other inaccuracies. Uh, For example, after leaving the church at Bethsaida, he wrote that he continued on to Chorazin, where Jesus healed the demoniac and sent the devil into a herd of swine. Well, the problem is, Chorazin isn't the place where Jesus encountered the demon-possessed man and the herd of swine. That's in the other direction. So there's at least some confusion about the accuracy of his account. But the debate does emphasize why it's been so difficult to locate Bethsaida. Etel, the larger of the two sites, is a mile north of the Sea of Galilee, while El Araj, uh, though right on the shore, isn't an ideal location for a major city. So one possible answer is that both sites might be connected with Bethsaida. Perhaps the larger site was the main city, while the smaller site was the harbor area. But hopefully, the problem will be resolved through continued excavations at both sites. Israeli researchers have developed a new diabetes treatment that was able to cure type 2 diabetes in mice. How does this latest innovation from Amazing Israel work, Charlie, and how soon might the treatment be available for humans? Well, their new approach involves the use of an autograph of muscle cells. 
Tissues were taken from the mice and genetically engineered to take in sugar at increased rates. The cells were then placed back into the mice. They not only continued to absorb sugar correctly, they also sent signals to other muscle cells that enabled them to improve their absorption of sugar as well. Essentially, the mice were cured of diabetes for the entire time they were under observation in this study. And in addition to their blood glucose levels being stabilized, the mice showed other improvements like less lipids in their liver. Uh, this one-time treatment could potentially replace the daily use of insulin. Now, unfortunately, it'll take several years until this new approach makes its way into the doctor's offices. Uh, the next step is to show that the approach works as well on human cells in the lab. And after that, they'll then move into actual human trials. But sometime down the road, the cure for type 2 diabetes might be as simple as having some muscle cells taken from your body, re-engineered, and then reinserted. And when that day does finally arrive, many will be able to thank the team of researchers from the Technion Israel Institute of Science for this amazing discovery. Charlie, we've got a lot of listeners in a lot of different life situations, some of them going through difficult seasons, hurtful times, painful times, and maybe they're facing sorrow. Your devotional tackles those very thoughts, I understand, today. It does indeed. We're going to be going to Psalm 56 and talking about tears in a bottle. Tears in a bottle. You don't want to miss that coming up later on the broadcast. But before that, we're going to have a conversation about a rabbi who was hungry for stories and teachings about Yeshua. But when he discovered life in Messiah, everything changed. Plus, Charlie, I see you've got your Bible with you. Are you ready to answer some more questions today? John, I love that section of our program. Uh, yeah, if they've got questions, I love to dig into the Bible for the answers, and we're ready for them. All right, and we'll look forward to that and your devotional as well. Our website is thelandandthebook.org, thelandandthebook.org. Have you checked out the podcast there? A lot of people have, Charlie, and for any number of great reasons. Oh, one of the best reasons is that they can find the program anytime. It fits their schedule, yep. not just when it's broadcast on air. To be honest, Charlie, that's how I listen to the program the most. I, I rarely get a chance to hear it on the air, but often with the podcast. Check it out. It's there at thelandandthebook.org. Well, coming up, what happens when a rabbi is searching for Yeshua and finds him? It's all ahead next on The Land and the Book. He was a rabbi, but not the kind we usually think of. This rabbi was actually seeking to learn about Yeshua, Jesus. Well, in the providence of God, he connected this seeker with a believer. And from that one conversation, an entire ministry was born. If you like a good story, you'll love what's coming next here on The Land and the Book. Welcome back, by the way. I'm John Geiger, and before I introduce you to today's guest, let's give uh, some thought to how you and I can reach out to the Jewish people in our lives. So admit it, you've got a Jewish friend, maybe a Jewish coworker, but you're afraid to share your faith because you think that they know way too much about the Bible and you won't be able to answer their objections. Is that you? Well, what do you do with that fear? Eva Rydelnik is with Chosen People Ministries. What do I do with that fear? I think that an encouraging verse to always hold in the back of your mind, whether you're talking to your Jewish friend or your Muslim friend or you're just 
generic American person is that I am not ashamed of the gospel, for mm. it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the non-Jew. We don't need to be afraid because God is the one who is at work. We are simply sharing the good news in the power of the Holy Spirit, leaving the results up to God. Now, as far as our Jewish friend knowing in the Bible and having answers to everything we say, eh, I'm sorry, that's wrong. Because <laughs> most Jewish people are not knowledgeable in the Bible. This is just sort of a myth that we have about them that keeps us fearful. And we need to close that out and say, no, we need to be bold. And most Jewish people really don't know much about the Bible. They're just like every other American. They don't know much about anything. And so we can be bold and confident when we share the scriptures about Jesus being the Messiah of Israel. And even if knowledge does become an issue, isn't the real essence here, it's not about being an expert, it's about being a friend who shows interest. Perfectly true. Our best tool in sharing our faith is our friendship that we've built with our Jewish friends. Wise words, as always, from Eva Rydelnik, who serves with Chosen People Ministries. Wes Tabor serves as Global Ambassador for Life in Messiah, a ministry that he led for many years. Wes seeks to bring glory to God by teaching in churches and schools. He also advocates for Life in Messiah and cheers on their staff around the globe. When he's not traveling, speaking, or in the office, Wes likes to ride his motorcycle, watch the Bears and the Cubs, good choices, by the way, and uh, play with his nine grandchildren one day soon. He hopes to write a book sharing many God-at-work stories from over four decades of ministry. Hey, welcome back to The Land and the Book, Wes. It's been a while. Well, thanks, John. It's great to be back in studio with you. So tell us the story about the rabbi who was seeking Yeshua. I'm intrigued. Well, this goes back to about 2010. Emmanuel House is our training center in Brooklyn. And there was a rabbi who was on his uh, way to faith in Yeshua, and he came for dinner. I wasn't in the room, but as the story was told to me, uh, while they were waiting for dinner, he was on his phone. And he kept dialing numbers, putting the phone to his ear, and listening. And finally, Steve, who was there with him, said, uh, are you listening to voicemail? He said, no, I'm listening to the rabbi's messages. Hmm. And Steve said, well, what are you talking about? He said, well, we have these phone numbers that you can call. And when you have a question about marriage or finances or some arcane idea from the law, you can listen to the rabbi's numbers. Okay. And then he said, and what number do I call to get your messages? And Steve said, well, we don't, we don't have a number. And that was the beginning of the search for In Search of Shalom. All right, so here's a guy who is uh, just sort of interested in possibly knowing what a believer might have to say. Uh, At what point did you know there was something more here than just this, quote, chance encounter? This was, you know, a ministry that needed to happen. Well, primarily it's because we're trying to reach the ultra-Orthodox. Life of Messiah started as the Chicago Hebrew Mission back in 1887, and for more than 130 years we've been bringing the gospel to Jewish people. But for the most part, our audience has been secular Jewish people, maybe Reformed Jewish people. The more observant a Jewish person is, the more resistant and reluctant they will be to talk about Jesus. Our guest today on The Land and the Book, Wes Tabor, who serves as Global Ambassador for Life in Messiah, a ministry that uh, he led for many years. What do we know about this rabbi who was seeking Yeshua? Did he eventually come to faith? Well, he did make a profession of faith. In fact, Uh, When he was in the room with us, he had already made a profession of faith, but like many ultra-Orthodox living in the community, he's married, he has uh, a wife with several children, and he also has a job in the synagogue. He wasn't the lead rabbi, but Mm -hmm. he was a teaching rabbi, 
And coming out as a believer in Yeshua would have cost him his family and his job. Hmm. So it was one of those cases where he chose to remain as a secret believer, not come out with Hmm. the clear testimony of faith. Do you think this story is kind of a one in a million, or do you think Jewish people, Jewish rabbis even, are all that open? Well, the percentage I can't tell you, but it's a growing number of Orthodox Jewish people that we're seeing who are expressing interest in Jesus, that's for sure. Yeah. What does this reality say to listeners who are joining us today? I think many of us are probably of the mindset, well, my Jewish friend would never in a million years want to hear about Jesus. Well, I've learned some time ago not to say no for other people, John. Uh, Sometimes we're surprised. Both ways. Just as an example, one time I was doing ministry in Israel. Uh, We were walking through a park, and there was a fellow sitting there on the steps reading some material. Mm -hmm. And as I walked by, I I just asked him, Ma Takore, what are you reading? And uh, he said, the Psalms. So immediately my mind flashed to the book of Acts. And Philip, who was uh, met an Ethiopian eunuch who was reading Isaiah 53. So I thought, well, this is a prepared heart. So I began to share the gospel with this fellow. And as soon as he found out that I was talking about Jesus, he got incensed, Mm. got on his walkie-talkie, and called some of his buddies over to get us out of town. So there was an example of someone that I thought was open who ended up not being. But I've also been surprised the other way, where someone who I was sure would not be open to the gospel turned out to be. And that's one of the reasons why I think the ultra-Orthodox have been so difficult to reach is because we've thought that there was an impenetrable community. Now, I've heard it said that uh, those who are, as you said, you know, pretty much steeped in Jewish tradition, Jewish religion here in the United States, quite resistant. However, in Israel, there seems to be much more of an openness in general to Jesus as Messiah. Is that is that your experience? Yeah, it sure is. We lived in Israel for two years, from 80 to 82, and— Back in those days, I would say there wasn't very much going on in terms of open evangelism. Uh, No one I knew was out on the streets preaching Jesus. When we started bringing the Yes Israel teams in the early 90s, one of the big shocks to me was how much more openness we were seeing. In part, that was due to the Russian-Jewish influx. When the Iron Curtain fell and Jewish people were finally able to leave the former Soviet Union and come to Israel, they were the most open of any Jewish people that we'd ever encountered. Hmm. I can tell you a quick story about that as well. Yeah, please. Uh, Dov Bikas took us to Ashdod, one of the ancient cities of the Philistines, but now a modern Israeli city that's really mushrooming. We filled up the van with boxes of Russian literature, and we were going to be with Dov for several days, and so I assumed that we were packing for the week. Hmm. Dov knew to bring us to the place where the market was, at a time when Russians were going back and forth to shop. He opened up the back of the van, we took out some boxes of books, and then he just began to say, Splatna, here's some free literature, huh. right? And to my shock and amazement, the Russians just kind of gathered around, and before I knew it, we were opening up another box and another box. Hmm. Uh, I'd never seen literature go out to unsaved Jewish people so quickly. And one lady, she took a Bible from me, and I don't speak Russian, but she said in modern Hebrew, do you know what this is? This is food. This is food. Mm. And she kissed the Bible. And I thought, man, I've got all kinds of copies of the Bible on my shelf. Yeah. When was the last time that I treasured it that dearly? Mm. 
Just joining us, I'm John Geiger, and this is The Land and the Book, where we're talking with Wes Tabor, Global Ambassador for Life in Messiah. This whole conversation is steering us toward a ministry known as In Search of Shalom. Describe it. Well, In Search of Shalom grew out of that conversation with the rabbi. We decided we need to find ways to get information to Jewish people who won't be able to seek it out readily. Mm -hmm. So the Internet, of course, was the first choice. And we began with the In Search of Shalom website. We later learned that the rabbis, as part of their way to control the community, have limited access to the Internet for their communities. Really? Yes. So, for example, if you see an ultra-Orthodox person in an ultra-Orthodox community with a cell phone, it may have a kosher stamp on it, which means that it's been approved by the rabbis. The rabbis can tell just by looking if you're using one of the approved phones. A kosher phone is used only for making phone calls. It doesn't have access to mm-hmm. the Internet. And if you do have access to the Internet, uh, then they have ways of blocking the, or only whitelisting. Really? This is stateside? Yeah, in, in ultra-Orthodox communities, yes. Mm-hmm. And people willingly submit to that for, what, a stamp of approval from their community? Well, it's, it's considered a protection. And you know this, John, in any closed community— the world is seen as an evil influence. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, uh, for example, pornography is a real problem sure. even in the Jewish community. Yeah. So as a way of safeguarding their people from evil ideas, including, in their view, false teachings about the Messiah, uh, they would restrict access yeah. to those places. Okay, given that, uh, what kind of response have you been getting? Uh, Particularly, I think of these video testimonials at the website. Again, Jewish people who have come to know Jesus as as Messiah, as Savior, they're right there sharing their journey, how they came to know Yeshua. Uh, What kind of response do you get? So there have been a couple of videos that we've created that have really drawn interest. Uh, One is the Jewish Superman video. Of course, most people know that Superman— the cartoon character, was actually a character who was invented by two Jewish writers. And if you look at the parallels between Superman, this kind of supernatural birth and coming to the earth and uh, having superpowers and so forth, uh, some have speculated that even the writers of the Superman stories had Jesus as a model. Hmm. So we've been advertising these uh, videos primarily in Israel and in Jewish communities here in the United States. And we've seen a marked increase in the number of people who've uh, come to see them. The other one is, uh, how many mitzvahs make a mensch? Yeah, I saw that. Yes. So for anybody who wants to go to the uh, the website, it's just insurgeofshalom.com, and you can see these videos yourself. But most importantly, what we would encourage believers to do is to send the URL to a Jewish friend and say, yes. hey, I just saw this video. I'd like to get your opinion of it. In Search of Shalom is a website that's uh, at our website, thelandandthebook.org. How would you suggest listeners use the website as an outreach tool? You've referenced already the fact that we could certainly just send the link, share the link with a Jewish friend. Any other ideas? Sure. So secular Jewish people, for the most part, don't have the same level of objections that religious Jewish people do. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, using Isaiah 53 as an example, that is a biblical text that is useful across the board. Most Jewish people don't even know that that chapter is in their Bible. But when we're dealing with the ultra-Orthodox, the more religious Jewish people, and especially those who have been steeped in religious tradition, 
Uh, there are places on the In Search of Shalom website that deal with specific objections or provide a path to get to yeah. Jesus using the Old Testament scriptures. That's good to know. Tell us a story of life change, Wes, that would be the one story you would tell if you had just a couple of minutes to share what life in Messiah is all about. Al Rogers was the son of a rabbi from Philadelphia. I met him here in Chicago, came to our Bible studies. Just a sweet man. He was elderly. His wife had already passed away. He was willing to study the scriptures, but his heart was really cold toward the Lord. Mm. He'd had some real hardships in his life. Just as an example, during the Depression, he had ridden on the trains, and being chased by a detective, he slipped and fell under a train wheel and lost one of his legs. Oh, no. So he had a lot of hardship in his life. Demonstrating the love of Jesus to him was not difficult. He was a really sweet man. But trying to convince him of the authority of the Scriptures, that God was personal, that God loved him, that Jesus was God's provision for salvation, that took a course of years. But the joy that came into his heart and to his life uh, before he passed away was one of the great joys of my life, to see a Jewish person come from a negative view of the Scriptures and of Jesus to becoming a follower of his. Well, I'm sure you've got other stories as well, but the clock does not allow us. Here's the deal, though. You can go to InSearchOfShalom.org and uh, learn more about what we're talking about here. See the videos for yourself. See how you can share them. Use them as tools. InSearchOfShalom.org. Wes, thanks for your time here in the studio. Well, thanks, John. It's been a joy. And uh, continue to pray for the salvation of the Jewish people around the world. They're close to God's heart, and they should be close to ours as well. Thank you for that reminder, too. Wes Tabor with Life in Messiah. Hey, check it out at our website, thelandandthebook.org. The link to what Wes is talking about here, all these great videos and more, thelandandthebook.org. Charlie Dyer's coming back right after this with a look at questions, maybe one of yours, here on The Land and the Book. Your day's going well. This is The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. I'm John Geiger, if we've never met. I'd like you to meet Dr. Charlie Dyer, noted Old Testament scholar, a guy who frequently travels to Israel, has been a pastor, and a guy who loves to answer your questions, which we welcome any old time here. You can email us with yours, thelandandthebook at moody.edu is how you get that email to Charlie. And what, it takes two or three months to get an answer, Charlie? Oh, John, I try to answer the email as quickly as possible, hopefully within a day or two. And then, of course, we put it into the pile, and eventually it will make it on air. But I don't want people to be waiting for weeks for their answer. No, you amaze me, the speed with which you're usually able to answer those questions. Though sometimes you're in Israel, and it takes a bit to get that answer back. Just hang in there. All right, let's dig into a fresh set of those questions, starting with Keith's. He says, I'm looking for a good DVD Bible study series that showcases places in Israel. Can you recommend any? I probably will not ever be able to go to the land of Israel, and this may be the next best thing. Yeah, I don't know of anything that exactly matches what you're looking for, but I do have two possible suggestions you might find helpful. The first is a series called That the World May Know. It's a DVD series by Ray Vanderlaan. I don't agree with everything he says, but I applaud his use of Bible geography and history and culture to help make the Bible clear. 
The second option isn't a DVD series, but rather an online set of videos by Wayne Stiles. And we've had Wayne on the program as a guest on several occasions. Mm-hmm. He'll take people to specific places in Israel uh, and in surrounding countries and help explain biblical truth in its geographical context. Uh, if you do a search for Wayne Stiles, it's S-T-I-L-E-S, and the name of his program, Live the Bible, Uh, You'll see some examples that will show how his videos are structured. I think you'll find the visuals and the biblical content to be superb, but Wayne Stiles or Ray Vanderlaan would be two great sources to check out. Mike and Cindy Gleichman are among our listeners. They're uh, longtime friends of Moody Radio. Mike managed our station in the Tampa area for some time. His question, is there some way that the Jewish calendar takes into account that the earth does not go around the sun in exactly 365 days? Since it's lunar-based, does that somehow take care of the issue? No need for a leap year? Uh, and I, I, the average person is listening going, huh, what? Uh, this is a fascinating question to me. Uh, the lunar calendar is used by Jewish people along with some other groups. And if you'd follow the lunar calendar, it comes out to 354 days in a year. It's 11 days short of the amount of time it takes the earth to revolve around the sun. Now, Israel solved the problem by inserting an extra month at regular intervals to enable the lunar calendar to realign with the solar calendar. They actually added what they called intercalated months seven times every 19 years. Now, when you first hear that, you go, well, that sounds complex, but it did work. And we actually do something similar. We say a year is 365 days, but that doesn't exactly match the amount of time it takes for the earth to revolve around the sun. That actually takes slightly longer. So we solved the problem by adding an extra day to our calendar every four years. But what most people don't know is that that actually throws off the calendar slightly. So at the start of every century, we drop the leap year. But dropping a leap year at the start of every century still throws the calendar off ever so slightly in the other direction. So if the leap century can be divided by 400, then we add the leap year back in. So we did have a leap year in the year 2000 because that's divisible by 400. So in one sense, our system is far more complex than the one used by the Hebrews. But it works because we remember the general rule, 365 days, and add an extra one every four years, and then only have to work through the exceptions on an irregular basis. And I think that's how they approach their calendar as well. So every so often you'll see an Adar, which is the 12th month of the Hebrew calendar, an Adar 2 added. And you know it's one of those years where they had 13 lunar months to make the calendar work out. Steve and Nancy listen to The Land and the Book on the Light Radio Network. Their question is about Jude 14 and 15. Jude seems to be quoting a passage attributed to Enoch, but there is no record of anything said by Enoch back in Genesis 5, verses 18 through 24. So where did Jude get the quote from? Was there a book of Enoch at one time? Yeah, and there is a so-called book of Enoch that was written about 100 years before the time of Jesus. So it wasn't actually penned by the Enoch in the Bible. Uh, There are several possible ways Jude got the quotation. First, it's possible the book of Enoch preserved a tradition that had been passed down orally from the time of Enoch. Or it's possible Jude simply quoted from the writing because it was well known in the first century and because the quotation matched the point he was making about God coming to judge unbelievers. Or it's possible that both Jude and the writer of Enoch were quoting an ancient tradition ascribed to the original Enoch. The, The fact that Jude is not an exact quote from the book of Enoch might give some support to that third option. Now, in any case, I don't have a problem with the citation. I actually see Jude using it in a way that's similar to what Paul does in Titus chapter 1. You know, that's where Paul quotes a pagan prophet. He says, 
One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, and this testimony is true. Well, the statement Paul quotes is true, even if the one who spoke it was not a true prophet of God. In the same way, Jude could be alluding to a statement attributed to Enoch that is true, even if the book of Enoch isn't actually part of the inspired word of God. Hey, thanks for listening to The Land and the Book, coming to you from Moody Radio and this great station. Our host is Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger, and on this very favorite segment for many folks, we're looking at questions that have been emailed to us, like this one from John, who says, I remember hearing or reading somewhere that the city of Damascus will be destroyed in the end times. Would you please tell me where in the Bible this is mentioned? Also, does this occur before or after the rapture? I think the passage you might have in mind is Isaiah 17, which some have claimed to be a prophecy of the destruction of Damascus in the end times. But as I read that passage, I believe that prophecy was fulfilled when the Assyrians conquered Damascus in 732 BC. Now, in that same passage, Isaiah also predicts the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel, which he calls Ephraim. He says the fortified city will disappear from Ephraim and sovereignty from Damascus. That's verse 3 of chapter 17. But why connect the fall of Damascus with the fall of Samaria if the fall of Damascus is something in the distant future? And that isn't the only place Isaiah puts those two cities together. In chapter 7, the prophet went to visit Judas King Ahaz, who was preparing for an expected attack from Rezin, king of Aram, that's Damascus, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel. Isaiah tells Ahaz that Aram with Ephraim have planned evil against you, and then he gives a promise to Ahaz. He says those kings will fall, their kingdoms will be conquered. And I believe Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 17 continues that prediction he made against these two specific nations that were fighting against Judah in his day in chapter 7. In both chapters, he connects the fall of Damascus with God's judgment on Ephraim or Samaria or the northern kingdom of Israel. And he says it would be fulfilled, in fact, in in chapter 7, he says, within 65 years. The events of Isaiah 7 took place in 734, and historically we know the city of Damascus fell to the Assyrians in 732 B.C., And the city of Samaria was destroyed 10 years later in 722 B.C. So both cities were conquered shortly after Isaiah made his prediction. Isaiah 17 was a genuine prediction of the fall of Damascus, but the fulfillment of that prediction has already taken place. David has a question for us about Noah. He says, I've been contemplating the story of Noah and his family. Noah lived more than 500 years before he built the ark. All of the men who were mentioned in the genealogies had many sons and daughters, I assume that their fertility was much greater than that of people today. It seems reasonable to assume that Noah had many sons and daughters, possibly hundreds of sons and daughters, and innumerable grandchildren, etc. But only three of his sons and their wives entered the ark and were saved from the judgment of the flood. Do you think that Noah probably had many children and descendants that would have died during the flood? Well, I have to start by saying it's at least possible that Noah had more children, including daughters. Uh, The Bible doesn't provide any hint, though, that that's the case. In fact, in Genesis 6.10, it seems rather definite. It literally says, and he begot, that is, Noah begot, three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. It specifically states the number of sons was three, and then it goes on to give their names. A few verses later, God explained to Noah that he had to build the ark and bring inside the animals. And then in verse 18, God told Noah that when it was done, you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your son's wives with you. 
Again, the mention of the sons seems to be all-inclusive. So while Noah could possibly have had other children, the text isn't written in a way that would suggest that's the case. So as a result, it looks to me as if these were his only children, and that might not be the most satisfying answer, but it's as far as I can go with the information we have in the passage. Let's sneak in one more question from Joe. She says, I struggle with Psalm 119. What do these various words want me to see in the breadth of Scripture? Yeah, the writer of Psalm 119 uses all those synonyms to stress the priority and importance of God's Word for our lives. The main Hebrew words he uses are word, law, statutes, precepts, commands, ordinance, and decrees. They focus on the promises God has made to us and the requirements God has laid out for us. Uh, you know, a dictionary could be helpful with that, but I think if you look at the second part of each line, you might find uh, a way to understand what he's saying. In essence, he's telling us all the ways we benefit from studying, meditating on, and following God's Word. That's a great, great psalm, too. So thanks for bringing that to our attention. Thanks for your questions. And thanks for sticking around for our next segment. It's Charlie Dyer's Devotional, right here on Moody Radio's The Land and the Book. Thanks for joining us today on Moody Radio's The Land and the Book with Dr. Charlie Dyer. Hey, Charlie, remember the Jim Croce song years ago, If I Could Keep Time in a Bottle? Yeah, I'm old enough, John, I do. (laughs) Me too, sadly enough. But uh, your devotional today has to do with something else in a bottle, and it isn't alcohol. No, that's exactly right. It's tears in a bottle. And uh, it's from Psalm 56. That's a psalm we're going to take a close-up look at on today's edition of The Land and the Book. Charlie, that's in the second collection of psalms, I understand. Absolutely. Now, watch your step. Uh, The roadway down the Mount of Olives is very steep. I don't want anybody to slip and fall on a patch of gravel. You made it past the mob of peddlers selling postcards, bookmarks, and camel leather belts. And now it's a little less hectic, but that's only for a short time. See that opening down there to the right, about 50 feet ahead? It's the entrance to Dominus Flavit, and that's our next stop. There's so much we can talk about at this site. You know, the ossuaries are bone boxes near the entrance, the beautiful view of Jerusalem from inside, or the thorn trees in front of the chapel that so vividly picture what the crown of thorns might have been like. But today, I want to point out one architectural feature of this chapel. Look carefully at the four corners. You see those decorative urns rising up on each side? Those actually represent tear bottles. This chapel commemorates the place where Jesus wept over Jerusalem. So the architect incorporated tear bottles into his design. But why tear bottles? What's the story behind them? Excavators have found numerous small glass-blown bottles from New Testament times that were used to collect someone's tears. It was as if by collecting their tears in a bottle, people could hang on to the memories of their loved ones through times of separation and loss. It was a tangible way to demonstrate how much you cared for somebody. The architect placed these bottles on each corner to remember the tears Jesus shed for this city and its people. Take one more long look at those bottles because I want to transport us to a different time and a different place. And the only similarity to what we've seen so far will be those tear bottles. Our destination is the city of Gath, out on the Philistine plain. And our arrival there is 3,000 years back in time, a 1,000 years before the time of Jesus. We've arrived in a city controlled by the Philistines, not the Israelites. In fact, the Philistines are at war with Israel, their sworn enemies. 
we're in enemy territory. And what's more, there's young David. In his desperate attempt to flee from King Saul, David foolishly thought he would be safe by fleeing to this Philistine city. But the leaders had a sharp eye and an even sharper memory. The battle in the Ela Valley had been short and chaotic, but yes, it has to be. This is the very one who killed the champion of Gath, Goliath. The leaders came right to the king with their accusation. Isn't this David the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands? When David heard these words, his heart sank. In fleeing from Saul to Gath, David had jumped out of the frying pan and right into the fire. For one of the few times in his life, the Bible says David was very much afraid. In desperation, David feigned insanity, hoping to convince the king he was no longer a threat. And the king allowed him to leave. David was still a fugitive from Saul, but at least he was no longer trapped inside the city of Gath. But what does David's near-death experience in Gath have to do with tear bottles? The answer comes from the very psalm written by David after this heart-pounding escape from Gath. In the introduction to Psalm 56, David tells us he wrote the psalm when the Philistines seized him in Gath. This psalm is a poetic retelling of his life-threatening experience in that Philistine stronghold. David begins his psalm picturing himself being trampled on and oppressed by his enemies. No doubt the nobles who seized him and brought him before the king wanted permission to exact their revenge on this one who had killed their champion and defeated their armies. David had good reason to be afraid. The threat to his life was real. But David then shared the inner thought process that made him such a man after God's own heart. Listen carefully to what he wrote in verses 3 and 4. When I am afraid... I will put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise. In God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? In his darkest hour, David understood that the God in whom he trusted was greater than the threats of the enemies he now faced. Great thought. But I can hear a critic standing up and saying, Sure, God is greater than all the problems I face. But how do I know he cares enough for me to help me? He might be great, but is he also good? And just a few verses later, David gives us the answer. In confidence, he cries out in verse 8, You have taken account of my wanderings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? A bottle and a book. David uses two images to picture how much God cares for his children. As David wept in fear and anguish, he suddenly pictured God softly pressing his heavenly tear bottle against David's cheek, carefully collecting each tear that fell from his eyes. God wasn't just listening. He was saving up those tears, a picture of the preciousness with which God held David, and by extension, the preciousness in which he holds all his children. David moved from the tear bottles to the book, his struggles and problems were, he said, recorded in God's heavenly book. The picture being conveyed is that God knows all that's taking place. Nothing escapes his notice. Nothing is missed. David had confidence because he knew God was aware of everything taking place. God wouldn't forget. And God treasured even the tears that fell from his eyes. Tear bottles. 
They commemorate the time the Son of God wept over Jerusalem. And they remind us that God cares for his followers, especially in times of anguish. David's message for us is simple. If you're struggling today, God knows and he cares. This leads David to shout triumphantly in the very next verse, This I know, that God is for me. So what problems are you facing today? What anxieties are keeping you up at night? What sorrows are staining your cheeks with tears? Realize this. God knows and he cares. Michael Ledner captured the essence of Psalm 56 in his song, You Are My Hiding Place. And as I close, I hope the words of that song, sung by Selah, will be your prayer as you think about the God who cares so deeply for you. Whatever you're facing today, you can trust in him. Well, what a beautiful thought there from Selah. I will trust in you. Let me ask you boldly here right now, if I could, personally, kind of climbing up in your space. Have you ever come to a place in your life where you have trusted Jesus to be the leader of your life, the forgiver of your sins? The Bible word for that is Savior. Have you ever done that? Ever said, Lord, I'm tired of running my own life, tired of running the show, and I want you to be in charge. You know, you can do that right now. You can be forgiven of all the the wrong thoughts and actions that you've been a part of. We've all got a, a pile of stuff that we wish we hadn't been part of. The Bible word for that is sin. And again, you can be forgiven of all that and begin a fresh slate, a fresh life with Jesus today, Jesus in charge. Let's pray together if that is the intent of your own heart. Lord, I'm coming before you today believing that you died for my sins, my wrongdoing, when you were on that cross. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for forgiving me. Now, I want to repent. I want to turn away from this stuff. Would you help me? And be in charge of my life from this day forward, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, you can continue this conversation online right now at chataboutjesus.org. That's chataboutjesus.org. Feel free to ask any questions you have about what it means to truly know Jesus, to trust in him, again, as we heard from Selah. And again, the place to go is chataboutjesus.org. Well, our time is about gone. It's been a great, great edition of The Land and the Book with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger, thanking you so much for making the time to be with us. Hope you'll tell a friend about our program. And join us next time for The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.